Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. And as we end the book of Acts soon, we're nearing the end of the journey through Acts, we see Paul surviving storms, shipwrecks, and snake bites. Pretty amazing stuff. Christ preserving his witnesses for his sovereign purposes. Last time, Paul was surviving a storm. Now we see him surviving a shipwreck. Paul's shipwreck. He is returning to Rome as a prisoner, trip to Rome, and we're going to see once again that no matter what problems come our way, our hope in Christ remains because we rest on the promises of God. Last week, in the midst of Luke's graphic nautical details of wind and sea and cargoes and harbors and dinghies and a nightmare storm, we saw three things that God always does. He always leads us, always delivers us, always reassures us with his word. And today, you could really call this part two of surviving storm and ultimate shipwreck. And we're going to see all three of those things once again, plus one more thing that God always does. Four things total that all encourage a faith-filled response on our part. So please stand with me. We're going to read... Acts chapter 27, I'll begin at verse 27. I like to remind us that this is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. It is not the word of man, it is the word of God that does its work in us who believe. So let's hear this word. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the soldiers were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, haven't taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. The centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So it was that all were brought safely to land. 
And Lord, we thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. Lord, that you would change us by your word, that we would obey what you teach us by your grace and for your glory. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So, Paul was a survivor. He survived uh, death threats and assassination attempts, severe beatings, false accusations, and imprisonment. Paul was a prisoner, survived arrest and imprisonment in Jerusalem, imprisonment and trials in Caesarea, and now he's in the process of being transferred to Rome. And he's surviving storms and shipwrecks, and we shall see next week, snake bite. Paul's anchor, Paul's hope in Christ, held fast. Luke was an eyewitness to all of it. Passenger and fellow traveler with Paul on this journey. We've got a map that you can follow along with. They go from Caesarea to Crete, verses 1 through 12. Then from Crete towards Malta, verses 13 to 26. And now to the shores of Malta verses 27 to 44, and they're inching ever closer, kind of at a snail's pace, to Rome. They're in a life-threatening storm. Verse 20 tells us that no sun or stars appear for many days. They're in the dark under the storm. They, They cannot see. They cannot navigate. And all hope of rescue is abandoned. They've lost all hope. They're like, there's no way we're going to live. But God's power and faithfulness is on display. And Paul gives a speech that illustrates three things that God always does by his power and faithfulness. The first thing we saw is that God always leads us. He always leads us and he gives us strength to represent him well, to lead well when called upon, to be strong in Christ. Paul was strong in Christ. Paul stood up and Paul led. Verse 22, he said, I urge you, Take heart, no loss of life, only the ship. Urges the crew to be confident, composed. You're not going to die in the storm. Because God preserves his servants for his purposes. The sovereign orchestration of all things, providence, and Paul is being led by the omnipotent hand of God. God always leads us. Secondly, we saw that God always delivers us and often rescues us from danger. You're here today, that's testimony that God has often rescued you from danger. You are secure in Christ. Paul says in verse 23, an angel of God, whom I be- God I belong to and God whom I worship, said, don't fear, you must stand before Caesar. You're going to testify. And God is going to rescue all who are with you, all of them. Well, no one's going to die. He gets this vision. The last of six visions that Paul gets in the book of Acts, one in chapter 9, one in chapter 16, one in chapter 18, one in chapter 22, one in chapter 23, and here. Here is reaffirming a promise that God had already made to Paul. Jesus had said to him in chapter 23, verse 11, you're going to go to Rome. You're going to testify before Caesar. Another thing we saw is that God always reassures us through his word. It's a key point for us. We have the sure word of Christ. Verse 25, Paul says, Take heart. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. He believes the word of God. Paul commands him to be confident. God will be true to his word. He will do as he said he will do. 
Paul reminds the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 32, that I commend you to God and I commend you to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. This is what the word of God does. God uses his word to, to build us up and to, to give us an inheritance among all other believers. And then in verse 26, we see that Paul predicts the ship will run aground on an island. We know it's Malta by chapter 28, verse 1. And so here the stage is set for a dramatic conclusion to this dangerous voyage. And God is keeping his word, and he is using, you'll notice, he's using many moving parts in the process. You probably feel like that in your own life. There's a lot of moving parts in your life, and a lot of things God is using. God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And, and you might feel in your life like God is taking you on the longest route possible, and you might even feel like you don't even know if you're going to make it to where you think you're going. But God knows the process he has you on. God knows the process he's taking you on to conform you to the image of Christ. So pick up the story with me in verse 27. Look at verse 27. 14 days adrift at sea after leaving fair havens. They're out driven across the Adriatic Sea. Now 19th century seaman James Smith in his classic book, The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul, calculated how long it would take you to go from, from Cauda or Clauda to Malta in a storm such as this. And what he figured was that in a storm such as this, your ship would go about a mile and a half per hour. Went really slow, and you're going to drift 36 miles every 24 hours. Now it's 476 miles from Cauda to Malta. The storm-driven boat would have been within three miles of Malta on the 14th night. The trip would have taken exactly 13 days, one hour, and 21 minutes. What this tells us is, is the same thing we see every time we open up the Word of God, that the Scriptures are accurate, that God is true to His Word. 14 days adrift at sea, they're coming across the Adriatic Sea. They're being driven across the Adriatic Sea, literally the Sea of Adria. Long, narrow body of water, uh, central Mediterranean Sea, not uh, to be confused with the present Adriatic Sea between Italy and Croatia. That was known in Paul's day as the Gulf of Adria. But about midnight, the sailors start figuring out, they're sensing that land is approaching. Maybe they hear the waves crashing on the shore. They start to, to take a sounding. Verse 28, a sounding. No sonar in those days. They take a rope and they put a weight on the end of the rope and they see how far down it goes. And they find that it's 20 fathoms. It's 120 feet. A little while later, they check again and now it's 15 fathoms. It's 90 feet. So as... As the water gets more shallow, they realize they're approaching land. And they fear they're going to crash on the rocks. So verse 29 tells us that they let down four anchors and they pray for daybreak. Now, I've heard sermons on this passage of Scripture before where the, the preacher will say, let me tell you the four anchors you need to cast out for, uh, in your life. You know, love, joy, peace, and patience or whatever. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not getting four anchors. Okay? You know what these anchors were? 
they were anchors. And you know what they were anchoring? The ship, not your life. They were anchoring the ship. They were trying to slow the ship down, trying to keep it from hitting rocks near the shore. So you're not getting four anchors today, okay? But they were praying for daybreak. They were hoping that maybe they would be rescued. They had already had the promise from Paul that they're going to be, they're going to, uh, be, be living when they land. But there were some on this ship that were disbelieving. And the impending crash into land would, would have been fearful to them. So the sailors decide, we're going to take matters into our own hands. We're going to try to escape in the lifeboat. Verse 30, look at it. Disbelieving sailors hatch a plan, an escape plan, and gonna, they say this, we're going to pretend to put more anchors out, okay? And we're going to lower the skiff dinghy into the sea, and we're going to take off and leave all those other people behind. They can fend for themselves. The crew decides to abandon ship. We're going to take their chances in a little dinghy. Paul figures it out. Paul sniffs out the plan. Paul foils the plan. Paul frustrates the plan. And he goes through the chain of command. He tells Julius, the centurion. He says, stop them. Look at verse 31. It's very clear. Paul says, unless they stay, no one's getting saved. You can't be saved unless they stay. Everyone's got to stay together in a unity. God told him somehow. He's talking about surviving a pounding storm and a promised shipwreck. And by this time, Julius had figured out this is not wise to not listen to Paul. I'm not going to disregard Paul's advice. Here's the sailors threatening um, to, to leave. And here what you see is that God's promise does not negate human responsibility. God uses natural means. He is using Paul here. He is using Julius here. He is using the soldiers as well as the sailors. Unless you stay, you can't be saved. I'm wondering also if, really when, Paul took the opportunity to tell them about their eternal destiny, about, I wonder when he, when he talked to them about their soul. Here's what I would have said. If I was on that, in that situation, and uh, if I could get the words out because you got the, the wind blowing at you and all the sea spray at you and all this, here's what I would say. Hey, everybody, I want to take this opportunity to tell you I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe he died for my sins and he rose from the dead. He died in my place as my substitute to pay for my sins. He was buried, he rose from the dead, and he is coming back with blessing for all who believe and judgment for those who do not. I pray from the deepest part of my heart that you would believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved from your sins and be saved from God's wrath against your sin. When you come to faith in Christ, you, your sins are covered. You're safe and secure in Christ forever. You are forgiven. You are beloved. You are accepted. This is what I would say. And I would tell them, it's all God's doing. And, and you receive his merciful gifts by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. However Paul may have said it, I'm confident he got to the gospel at some point with these men. Paul himself said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Luke is giving a condensed version of, of this situation and what Paul said, and I'm sure he got to the gospel at some point on this voyage. Now, some people think that Julius became a believer during the trip. At some point in the journey, believed in Jesus and expressed his faith through his obedience to Paul's command and what he did next. We don't know for sure. Here's what we do know. 
Look at verse 32. Julius tells the soldiers, cut the ropes, let the dinghy go. Those soldiers are not escaping. I'm going with Paul. That must have been a tense moment. Crew versus sailors, soldiers, soldiers versus sailors. Uh, it must have been very tense. They wanted to leave, and he's like, no, you're not leaving. It must have been fearful. Verse 33, day's about to dawn, and Paul says, eat. Eat some food. You've gone 14 days in suspense, and without eating, you're seasick. Uh, you've had little to nothing to eat since we left Fair Havens. You're weak. You need strength. Eat. It's awesome when you're in a situation of crisis that someone can just calm everybody down. Paul is that person. He helps calm the passengers. They're waiting for the dawn. Dim prospect of making it to shore in some of their minds. Tells them, eat for strength. And he restates the promise that God gave him with a Jewish figure of speech. Verse 34. He says, not a hair will perish from the head of any of you. That is a, a, a Jewish way of saying, you have total protection. You're not going to die. This is what Saul said to his men regarding Jonathan. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. It's a way of stressing the certainty of your survival. And then Paul does something that's very significant as well. He leads the way. He, he sits down and has a meal for one, table for one, and starts eating bread. Verse 35, look at it. He takes bread, he gives thanks to God in front of them all, breaks it and eat. He's like saying, um, we're good. I'm eating. You should too. Come on. Eat lunch with me. And he boldly prays and gives thanks to God in the presence of these pagans. And Paul encourages everyone on board, possibly up to 273 unbelievers. We know there's Luke and Paul and Aristarchus that are believers. But he tells them, eat and get some nourishment and strength. And he was able to do this because of his confidence that he had in his relationship with Jesus. It's a testimony of God's faithfulness in spite of unfaithful crew members. God, Paul gives thanks in the presence of all of them. Makes it very clear that he is worshiping the one true God and that he is looking to him and is under God. In verse 36, they, they take his leadership. They all are encouraged and they all eat. Parenthetically, Luke says in verse 37, there were 276 of us. So the ship they were on now was larger than the small vessel that Paul sailed in from Caesarea to Lycia. Josephus talks about an Alexandrian grain vessel that he was on at one point that shipwrecked in the Sea of Adria that had 600 people on board. So 276 wouldn't be an uh, unrealistic number of people to have on board. A man named Lucian described one of these Alexandrian grain ships, at, uh, which was called the Isis, 180 feet long, over 45 feet wide, 44 feet deep at its deepest in the bilge, a tall mast, the prow jutting out right in front with a figure of the goddess Isis, after whom the ship was named, and there were paintings and decorations, and the sail was painted, and there were cabins, and there were anchors, and he said the number of sailors were, a, was, were an army of soldiers, and that it could carry enough corn to feed Attica for a year. So the ship they were on, though it might not seem large to us, was a, a big ship in those days. Verse 38 tells us they all ate, and then they started throwing out the rest of the grain that had been left over, because they had, they had been throwing grain over earlier in this voyage. Now they're saying, no more food. You all eat what you need now. No more food. We're going to run aground 
on the shore. Verse 39, a day, day breaks, and they don't recognize the land, but they see a bay with a beach. They see a bay with a beach, a sandy beach, uh, not a rocky set of cliffs. They wouldn't want to land on that. They, they, they want to go for the beach. So the crew wants to reach the beach, and so that's what they're heading. Perfect place to land a boat, right? So they throw anchors into the sea. They loosen the ropes and all that, and they head for the beach. But then they strike a reef. Verse 41, uh, they run the vessel aground. They, they don't know what's going to happen, but uh, the ship sticks immovable. The stern, then you can picture this, starts getting broken up by the, by the rough surf, by the waves. Water's coming in, and they hit a reef. Now, archaeologists have surveyed the waters around Malta. They have discovered eight shipwrecks of Roman-era boats. So it must have happened more uh, pretty often around there. And so what happens is, the soldiers are like, well, wait a minute. Now all of our prisoners are going to escape. We've got to slaughter them. We've got to kill them so they don't escape because if we lose our prisoners, then we lose our lives. So that's what the plan is in verse 42. And then in verse 43, God uses Julius, the centurion, to save Paul's life as the rest of them as well. He wants to save Paul so he keeps them from killing the prisoners. Another tense moment. He orders those who could swim to jump overboard first. Make it for land. I remember once being on a ship uh, on, on the coast here, somewhere in the area of, uh, I don't know, somewhere between Newport Beach and, and San Diego, I guess. And someone had taken a, a crew of us, this is like 25 years ago, and they take taken us into this bay, and they stop, and they put the anchor down, and then they're like, okay, so we're gonna spend about two hours right there on the beach which was like a half mile away, they said, everyone just jump in and swim to shore. And I'm thinking, you didn't tell me this before we were going on this trip. And uh, I had never swam that, long, that far before. And I was, I was actually a little bit nervous and uh, clung on to whoever was, I think I clung on to the pilot uh, as they helped me to shore until we got to the waves and then I kind of you know, body surfed in. But I'm telling you, it, it, was, uh, it was an interesting, interesting little voyage there. Uh, they, they jump overboard if they can swim, but the rest of them, like, find a plank, find a piece of ship, and just kind of float in. And then the end of verse 44. So it was that all were brought safely to land. There you have it. The perfect ending. God said this would happen. One way or another, they all reached land safely. The supernatural promise that God made in their darkest hour to Paul has been fulfilled to the letter. The ship is lost, the cargo is lost, but every life on board is saved. Praise God. God did it. God did it. This is a, it's a miraculous thing that God does. And you think of all the moving parts. You think of all the moving pieces where one thing goes wrong or someone does this or that and it doesn't happen. But guess what? God orchestrated it so that it did. So that the, the crew members didn't escape and the soldiers didn't kill the prisoners. We're looking here at Paul's shipwreck. That was his context. Paul's shipwreck. I want you to think about your context. I want you to think about your life right now and how this might apply to you, how some of the truths that we bring out might apply to you. And by the way, if it doesn't stick in your life at this point, maybe it will if you remember what I say. But I hope there's something here for you. Let's think about the context in which you're living right now. How old you are, how young you are. 
Maybe you feel like there is nothing you can do about a certain situation that you are in, that you are helpless. And maybe you even said, I, have, I see no hope of, of, of a good resolution. Maybe you say, I don't know if I can fulfill my calling. I don't think I'm very good at my calling. Or I don't think I can succeed at my calling. Or maybe it's just a harassment of some sort coming from somewhere. And maybe you're feeling like you're not making any progress. Or maybe it's self-inflicted wounds and you're not making any progress. Or maybe you're trapped. You're just trapped. Maybe in a certain way of doing things or an addiction or a, or a frustration. Whatever your context is. I like what John Wooden, my favorite coach ever, said. Do not let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do. Do not let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do. What can you do? Now, we've looked at, we've looked at three things already that God always does, right? He always leads us. He always delivers us. He always reassures us by his word. We're going to look at one more in a few moments. But it's not as if you're going to sit in that chair for the next 10 years on autopilot while God just always does all those things. You have got to live. You have got to move. You've got to go. So what can you do? What faith-filled response might God enable you to do in response to what he always does? Think of the things we've seen. How God always leads us and how he gives us strength to lead when called upon. Paul says, don't leave, don't leave the ship. Eat some food. Julius says, don't kill the prisoners. God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. You feel weak? Welcome to the club. What's the faith-filled response to God always leading us? It is to lead by example. Wherever God has given you opportunity, again, however young or old you are, lead by an example. Paul says to young Timothy at one point, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Be an example for believers. Well, I would say to you, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young or because you're old or because you don't think you can do this or that or people don't think you can do this or that. Lead by example, especially in crisis, because true leaders can handle the stress and bear the burden and solve the problem and come up with solutions. You've got to lead when you need to lead. Make decisions. There are a lot of people that are afraid to lead. They're like, I'm not taking a, a position of leadership because I'll get criticized. Welcome to the club. Or I'll have a target on my chest or on my back. No, you have to accept the responsibilities that come with a leader. And everyone has their opinion about leadership. Leadership is in crisis today. But God knows what makes a good leader. And God has always had good leaders that he raises up. The Holy Spirit is seeking leadership amongst the body of Christ to raise up. God is calling out leaders. At every crisis time in history, God has affected his will through leaders. Moses, Abraham, Joseph, Joshua, David, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul. Leadership is not a position, it's not an appearance. It, it is under the providence of God and the plan of God, and God uses unlikely leaders. If you say, But I am the most unlikely leader ever, welcome to the club. 
I remember being a young believer and someone asking me, what would you do if you could do anything? My response was, I would want to tell people about Jesus my whole life. And they said, maybe you should be a pastor. And I'm like, no way in the world. Because I knew I was pretty messed up and I, and I just thought, all the pastors I know seem to have it all together. <laughs> we all know that's not true. Unlikely leaders. How about Joseph? Joseph's slave rose to second in command only to Pharaoh over Egypt. Unlikely leader. How about Daniel, captive of Judah? Proves himself. God uses him. How about Paul? Prisoner. Now he's being followed by a strong centurion. Do you notice how the roles have been reversed? Here's Paul being led to Rome and now he is being followed. Proved himself to Julius, proved himself to the crew members, proved himself to the soldiers, proved himself to the fellow prisoners and trusted leader. Think about how God always delivers us and often rescues us from danger. What's the faith-filled response to that? It's very simple. Trust God. Trust Him. All were brought safely to land, just like God said. Total success. God's providence in spite of a terrible storm, violent storm, the planned escape of the crew, uh, the soldiers' intention to kill the prisoners. God's protection. God's orchestration. How do you respond to that? You trust God. You, you never give up. God's going to allow you to go through a lot of things in your life. He already has and he will. Storm, you can call them storms. You can call them shipwrecks. But he is, if you're a believer, he is present with you and he protects you until he has ordained for you to die. We're going to see this next week that, that, that the Christian is invincible until Christ returns or God calls him home, whichever comes first. This calls for unwavering faith. Just like Paul in verse 25, I believe God. I believe him. We saw that God always reassures us with his word. What's the faith-filled response to that? It's to receive it and then share it with others. Don't keep it to yourself. Paul did not keep God's word to himself. He spoke it and he spoke of it. I believe that it will be just as I have been told no one will perish from the ship as long as you all stay on board. Because God is faithful to his promises. He told others. He spoke on God's authority. God's word is authoritative, so you speak on God's authority when you have the word of God. D.L. Moody said, the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge. The Bible was given to change our lives. Paul's life was changed by, by the, the word of God. I hope your life has been changed by the word of God. I know many of you very well, and I can attest to the fact that since I've known you, God has changed you by his word. Isn't that awesome? That you could actually look back and go, wow, God has actually changed me. I haven't noticed the changes maybe recently, but as I look back over time, wow. And then you look at family and friends and others and even people that really annoy you, and you go, wow, God is changing them. This is good. This is so good. God says in Isaiah 55, my word will not return to me void without accomplishing that for which I sent it out. We can be uncompromising as we 
as we present God's revealed will in his word. It's absolute. I want to mention one other thing, and you might have seen this in this passage, you might have passed on by, but you might have latched onto it. There is prayer in this passage. Did you notice? They prayed for day to come, and then Paul was giving thanks to God in the presence of all of them. The thing that God always does is, in believer's life, he always hears our prayers. You can't say that for unbelievers. You can say that for believers. Even in the midst of storms and shipwrecks and spoiled plans. And the, the faith-filled response to God hearing us is us praying, us continue to pray. It's a relationship with God. They prayed for daybreak. Paul gave thanks in public. They were praying in crisis. There was a leader following Jesus. The appropriate response to God is prayer. Paul says in Colossians 4.2, devote yourself to prayer. The question is though, if God already said they were going to make it, why were they praying? Why pray when God's already promised something? He's already promised it, right? When he already knows the future and he has everything in control, why pray? It's the same reason we pray. To declare our dependence on God. To declare our alignment with his plans and our, our desire for his will to be done. For Christians, praying is like breathing. It's easier to do than not to do. We pray for many reasons. We pray to worship God, to serve him. We pray out of obedience. God tells us to pray. We pray for wisdom. Prayer is not a way to get God to do our will. Prayer is a way of doing God's will. The Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus, our high priest, knows what we go through. Hebrews 4 and verse 16, that we can, therefore we can come boldly to God's throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can pray. We can come boldly. There, there is a God-confident boldness that God gives his people. And there is also a self-confident arrogance that can sometimes be mistaken for God-confident boldness. They might look similar at times, but they're vastly different. One comes anchored in Christ, one is rooted in sin. We need to come God-confidently bold in prayer, believing the promises of God. What should you pray for? You have all sorts of prayer requests, don't you? You, you might even have a list of things you're praying for all the time. What should you pray for? Should you pray for world peace? It's not a bad thing to pray for. Should we pray for the end of terrorism? That's not a bad thing to pray for. Can we, can we pray for an end to poverty and starvation? That, that's not a bad thing to pray for. Can we pray for the perfect, can you pray for the perfect relationship to come into your life? Can you pray for help in losing weight or maybe gaining weight? Can you pray that your problems will be solved? Can you pray that, that things work out the way you're hoping that they work out? Those are not bad things to pray for as long as you're seeking God's will. But there is something I believe that we neglect to pray for often. Something Paul prayed for often. Something that it, it, it seems that he is praying for here as they're praying for day to come and as he is praying in thankfulness to God. And it's this. Pray for what God has promised. Pray for what God has promised. Pray for the promises. Do you ever 
pray for the promises of God to come true? There's no question that the promises of God are going to come true. Why would you pray for the promises of God to come true? Because you're aligning yourself with the promises of God. I'm, I'm serious about it. You have to pray for the promises. Pray for the promises. 2 Samuel chapter 7, here's a good example. Beginning at verse 9, God makes some amazing promises to David. It's the Davidic covenant. God says, I will make for you a great name. I will raise up your offspring after you. Uh, the one who will come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Those are some pretty earth-shattering, eternity-shattering, uh, changing promises. I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever? Your throne will be established forever? That's the promise ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. But what's surprising is David's response when he first gets the promise. He asks God to do the things that God has just said he is going to do. 2 Samuel 7, verse 27, You, O Lord, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray to you. We have courage, we have gospel courage to pray because of the promises of God. He says, Now may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. He's praying for the promises of God to come true. It's a model for us. It reminds us of the privilege of prayer. David would not have ever dared ask for that unless God had promised that. We can dare, prom we can dare pray for what God has promised. That's a bold prayer. What a privilege to ask anything at all from the God of the universe. But don't we treat God lightly? We think we can just waltz into his presence and just start asking for our list of things. Reverence for God demands a different stance. A humble, bold stance based on God's promises. Is it wrong to ask for something you want? Not always. It can be, if you're asking only for yourself. Is it right to ask God to fulfill his promise? Always. Always. Paul did this. Ephesians chapter one, here's one example. I remember you in my prayers that, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you would know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul is praying what God has already promised to give them. And believer, God hears your prayers. You can pray. If you can do nothing, you can pray. John Bunyan said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you can not do more than pray until you have prayed. Do not let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do. Boom! Did I wake you up? I had to say that just to wake you up, just in case. So your marriage is challenging. Welcome to the club. Your singleness is challenging. Welcome to the club. Your kids are confusing. Welcome to the club. Your parents are confusing. Welcome to the club. Work is frustrating. Bills are piling up. Resources are dwindling. Energy is waning. Welcome to the club. Paul says, don't worry about anything. Philippians 4, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There it is. Pray about everything, especially what God has promised. Pray for workers in his harvest of souls. Pray for peace, love, joy, wisdom, growth in Christ. Pray in worship. Pray in obedience. Pray for strength. Because you know what? No matter what, no matter what comes your way, if you're a believer, your hope remains because you rest in the promises of God. You can bank on the promises of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the suspense continues in our life not knowing what you will do next, not knowing what you will bring next, not knowing, but you do, and we praise you. Thank you that you always lead us, always deliver us, always reassure us via your word, and you always hear us. And thank you for encouraging a faith-filled response on our part, that we would lead, that we would trust, that we would share, that we would pray, all for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.